Yeah, the, um, you know, it's great that we can be a people who live generously uh, based upon the character of God. Um, certainly the, uh, you know, circumstances may flavor um, our ability to give or the, in, in some respects, but the, our heart of giving is based upon um, God's faithfulness to us. Um, and he forms the basis for our actions and responses in life. And so uh, as we continue to support, um, I think what Phil and Mindy have just described, we're supporting people in their needs. And also we're supporting someone who is supporting others in need. And it's just a um, beautiful picture of what they're doing and spreading the gospel in those practical ways. Um, so uh, do uh, just pray. What is your part? How can you be a part of making God's kingdom known here on, on earth as it is in heaven? Um, so we are beginning Holy Week and I'll, I don't know if you like me just feel like this has yet to feel really like, um, like Holy Week, like Easter, um, like we are really headed into it. It doesn't feel like we're a week away. It doesn't feel like we're uh, at Palm Sunday today. But I want to mention that um, this week upcoming is, is huge. And not just from what we see in the news, but I want us to keep in mind what this means from uh, the Christian calendar year. This is a week where we keep vigil. And that word vigil is a kind of a weird word for many of us. But it basically means just to remain awake and alert and focused. Um, if we enter into the story in real time, uh, this is the week where Christ, uh, where Jesus invited his apprentices to keep vigil with him as he poured out his heart to the Father in the garden. Um, he said, will you be with me in this time of need? And uh, we know from the story that they struggled to stay awake. They struggled to stay focused. And then as the story began to unfold, uh, they they began to really struggle with even staying present. Uh, most of them fled, and um, we have accounts of, of Peter and, and his denial and things like that. And so this is a week for us to keep vigil. It's a way for us to say we want to be present with Jesus as we remember what he went through. And we engage in scripture passages that specifically will remind us of what Christ went through in that final week and in those final hours leading up to his crucifixion. And, um, and so that's part of what we're going to be doing today. Before I get to our passage in Psalm 31, um, a couple of things. One, I want to mention how you can participate in our Easter service next week. More than just being present uh, and showing up uh, in our Zoom gathering, it'll be the same um, Zoom address as what we have right now. Um, more than just uh, showing up and inviting others to come with you, this is what I would like for you to do, and we'll have, you'll have to do this in advance. In fact, this is a, we invite you to do this by Wednesday of this week. Um, would you email a picture of yourself as you are engaged in an activity in which you feel fully alive? Think about what is it that when you're engaged in whatever that is, it, you feel fully you. You're just like, man, life doesn't get any better. So maybe it's something that you can do between now and Wednesday, and you can take a picture of and, and email it to Brian, which is B-R-Y-A-N, uh, Y-A-N, 
at baymarin.org. Uh, or maybe you got to reach back into your archives. Maybe something that maybe that, that you feel fully alive doing isn't something that you're able to do during this social distancing. Uh, what is it? When you're participating in this activity, you feel fully alive. You're, it's hiking. It's reading. It's sculpting. It's, it's holding a newborn. Uh, what could that be for you? So send that picture, and we're going to put those together, and it'll be a part of our Easter service next week. Um, and then I also want to update you. If you get our, our weekly email, I mentioned the possibility of us doing a blood drive on Good Friday. And unfortunately, we are not able to uh, – the uh, the organizations that would be able to help with that are not able to in that short a time – get a turnaround to where they could have a, uh, like one of those mobile units, for instance, on our church property and set up and ready to go. So we will not, on Good Friday, have that blood drive, but it, just know that that is still a critical need. You can Google ways uh, um, that to help meet this critical need and uh, check our website and your inbox for ways that we will be able to keep vigil on Good Friday, some things that we will be doing together using technology. So, okay, that chat feature. I want to invite you to use the chat feature. And how would you describe, just answer this question in a word or a phrase, how would you describe these times that we are in? These are blank times. How would you fill in that blank? What are the, how would you describe the times that we are currently in? Uncertain. It could be, um, yeah, here we got uh, Jonathan, strange, unprecedented, global, yeah, cozy, challenging, tough, faith strengthening, calming, simple, resetting, stressful, lonely, stretching, unsettling, different. Those are all great responses. Rebooting, most peculiar, turbulent, exhausting, scary, quiet and peaceful, table turning, sobering, untethered, a learning experience, game changing, an opportunity, frenzied, creative. It feels like Passover, hunkered down at home, waiting for the angel of death to pass over. Mm. Difficult. Lots of family time. Maybe that could be combined with difficult. <laughs> Adaptive. There's just so many things. If we were to just like blank times, um, what are these times that we are in? And as I was, I kind of spent some time earlier this week filling in that blank. What are blank times? What What are the words that come to mind? One of them was fast times, if you're an uh, old 1980s movie fan. But um, the these times that we are in, how do we... How do we reflect on these and what should be our response? How many of you are being haunted by the shoulds and the oughts um, in, in, this, in this time? In Psalm 31, this is a psalm penned by David, and it's a psalm of lament. Now, what is a lament? 
uh, lament is not just whining or complaining. It runs deeper than that. It's an expression of deep grief and sorrow. Uh, lament is what, as I was reading about it, is what issues forth from deep within a broken and questioning soul. As many psalms of lament do, they have a pattern of expressing sorrow, but eventually they do transition to thanksgiving. And so we're going to look at this psalm <clears throat> where David is, he describes the times that he is in. And this is, a, this is a, one, of the, one of four readings from the lectionary for this Palm Sunday. Uh, it is a great psalm for us to enter into as we um, take our next step Monday into Holy Week. Uh, it's so timely for where we are in this point in history. It's timely for where it is in the Christian calendar year. Uh, but this is a lament of David. He is in a time where he would fill in that blank with a lot of um, really stress-filled descriptors. And so let's read that. We're going to pick it up in verse 9, Psalm 31, beginning in verse 9. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. These are distressful times that David is talking about. And then he describes physically what's taking place for himself in these distressful times. He says, my eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. It, this is deep sorrow. It's impacted him physically. It's, it's impacted his eyesight. It's impacted something. It's something that he feels deep in his bones. And then in this particular lament, beginning in verse 11, David begins to express the relational impact. So not just a physical impact, uh, but now he's, he's addressing how relationally this has impacted his life. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. So this lament, it's, this is not just a frustration that he has with enemies or just his acquaintances, his neighbors. This is impacting his closest relationships. Verse 12, I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery, for I hear, my, uh, I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. So this lament, it includes his relationships. And if you are one who um, really uh, would like to see the parallel of how this psalm and that week of, of Christ's life leading up to and including the crucifixion, how these parallel, um, you could walk through the verses of Psalm 31 and the verses of Matthew 26, and you will be able to see at times where Jesus quotes from this Psalm of Lament. Uh, and you will see how this is not just a Psalm of Lament, but it is a, a prophetic voice for what Christ himself endured. And in the midst of that, I think we are also able to see glimpses of uh, just our own sorrow and what we are encountering right now, what we see portrayed in the news. So verse 13 ends with, um, I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. And then verse 14, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me 
from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant and save me in your unfailing love. And what this psalm in particular uh, characterizes, emphasizes, is the trustworthiness as a character of God. It emphasizes God's trustworthiness. And it's a good psalm to read, a timely characteristic of God to read about as we enter this week of the Christian calendar year, but also enter this week of unknowns. Can we acknowledge that we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like in our world? We don't know what this week holds. That's why probably first thing in the morning when you get up, you're you're looking, you're reading a news uh, update, something recent that showed up on your phone, or you're turning on the news. We don't know, and we, we are interested in knowing what is about to happen. So verse 14, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Let's be really clear what David is saying here. This is not a confidence that things are going to work out for the best, because Sometimes they don't. The, the trust that the psalmist declares is in the unchanging character of God, not in what he wants God to do. In all of this, he is trusting that God is going to be God. When you and I wake up tomorrow, God will still be God. And the psalmist is saying that if he wakes up tomorrow and, and is still suffering, God is still God. Now, this, this psalm reveals what feels like a very abrupt change of mood between verses 13 and 14. Um, several other psalms, especially psalms of lament and thanksgiving, uh, give you that same sense of, of whiplash. It's kind of like, wait, what? Because here David is talking about all of this terrible stuff and the suffering, and then in the very next sentence, I trust in you. And I've often wondered if you read that, well, if you read that in your Bible, the way it is in my Bible, and I don't know how it was when David penned it, but in my Bible, there's a space between verses 13 and 14. Um, and it's kind of a, uh, just a visual cue that there's a shift in what is about to take place. This isn't just a new paragraph. It's like, okay, different chapter. And I've often wondered how much time may have elapsed between the time David penned the phrase, they plot to take my life, and the next sentence, I trust in you. Now, I've, I've journaled for the better part of 25 years, and I've noticed that my journals have the same almost Jekyll and Hyde dichotomy. I'll rant and complain and grieve and cry out, and then you would read a clear-minded declaration of trust in God, and it, it just seems so almost mental to, to read through some of those. Now, I, I can only speak from my experience, but there has often been a significant amount of space between lament and an expression of trust. In other words, I'm not usually journaling something where it's a rant, and then I, without breaking pace, a breaking rhythm, go right into, but I trust in God. There's usually some space that is some something that has happened. Sometimes it's later that same day that I can put on paper, I trust in you. Sometimes it's after a good night's rest and it's the next morning and then I can put, oh, but I do trust in you. But to be honest, sometimes it's not for weeks or until I've journaled that pen out of ink and moved on to a new separate journal. 
It, it's like, think of it like this. It's like the ink in your pen is the same color, but at, this, at, at some point up in the chamber of that pen, the ink of lament gives way to the ink of trust. And I, I can't see how long it takes. I can't see how long it will take to drain the ink of lament, but I believe eventually the ink of trust will flow again. But to get to it, I need to continue my lament. There's something healthy about that, very cathartic. Expressions of both lament and trust coexist in my same pen, so to speak. So to encounter distress and trust is not a sign of mental illness. It could simply be a sign that you are alive. Now, hang with me on this. Um, I've got a 1971 Ford pickup that is currently in several pieces. I've referenced it before. It's midway through a very slow rebuild. I bought it in Alabama. It is yet to see the beauty of Marin. Um, but for the first year or two that I drove it, the engine often smoked. And so I asked a good friend of mine, Ed, in Alabama, uh, I said, what does it mean that the motor smokes? And I'll never forget what he said. <laughs> he said, it means it's running, Con congratulations. So indeed, uh, about the only time that it didn't smoke was when it wasn't running. Maybe if you sense yourself thinking these thoughts or voicing these thoughts, I'm really feeling the stress and pressure of all that's going on. Why do I feel such stress and anxiety? It means that you're alive and running. Congratulations. <laughs> it, it means that you're aware of what's going on in life right now. Like I stated just a moment ago, this distress, sorrow, deep lament, dread, betrayal, the scheming that the psalmist had, and then all of a sudden a declaration of trust, well, maybe trust wasn't all of a sudden. Now, trust in God may have been there all along, even in the lamenting and expressing of deep grief, there was trust. But I wonder if David just had to get that out until he got to that point of his pen where trust began to flow. Um, I read in a New York Times article um, that included, uh, included this quote by N.T. Wright. He says, lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. Let me say that again. That's pretty... Uh, it's, it's so dead on that sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. The Psalms of Lament, these poems, such as what we're reading in Psalm 31, often come out into the light by the end with a fresh sense of God's presence and hope, but not to explain the trouble, but to provide reassurance within it. That also is a quote of, of N.T. Wright. The Christian community has historically had two primary responses to suffering in the world. Um, the Christian community is also uh, sometimes really vocal in saying that the reason for all this suffering is because God is punishing sinners. That's a rational view. And the other is a more romanticized view that is everything will eventually be okay. What we want, as N.T. Wright has stated, we want to be able to explain the trouble, but sometimes there is no explanation. So what, so what if neither of these responses is true? What if the coronavirus is not a form of punishment from God? 
And what if in some ways things are never going back to the okay as we had defined it and the okay that we were accustomed to? And I know in, in posing that question, I am saying out loud what some of us have been feeling inside and maybe been a little fearful to say, to verbalize. What if things don't go back to the okay that we used to know? When we talk about peace, and we, we address this, we've, we're this little series that we're in, a contagion of peace. We've been talking about this for the last few weeks. Um, when we talk about peace, I'm not speaking as a rationalist who, once I can explain the why of our current situation, is going to be at peace. I'm not talking about a romantic idealist who, upon being convinced that everything will be okay, is then able to tap into peace. I believe that the deeper challenge for Christians is to discover peace when there really aren't answers. I think this is the time when people will turn to Christians, turn to people who they, they perceive as having a close relationship with God, and they'll turn to us for answers because we say that we believe in God. And I think when they turn to us for answers, we need to be okay with saying, I don't know. In fact, I don't think we will ever know why all this has happened. We can't control the outcome. We can control our response and whether we are transformed into a clear reflection of Christ. Think of it this way. What if one of the things that comes out of this pandemic is an increased ability to live in the tension of letting God be God? What if one of the things to come out of all this is for control freaks like me to be a little less control freakish? Can we be at peace with God's ways being so much higher than our ways, even when we can't fully understand or explain what's happening? Here's a few things that I do know. One, um, I know we don't have as much control over life as what we thought. Uh, this pandemic is waking us up to that reality. Even in our, our world, our nation that is so advanced, we're realizing we don't have the control over life that we thought we did. Second thing that I know is that we don't know what tomorrow holds. I've already mentioned this. Um, I don't know that I've ever lived in a season that has felt like from literally from hour to hour, it's changed so much. And just, I don't know what to expect. But there's also a third thing that I know, and that is, and, and somebody even mentioned this in, in, what, uh, in your chat for what these times are. We have an opportunity to hit reset in some really significant ways, and that's a grace gift. Think about it. If there is a normal that you don't have to go back to, then don't. Here's, here's our chance to reset and to rewrite some of what could be normal. And so let me kind of wrap it up with this. Um, I've been wrestling with how lament and trust can coexist, even with how worry and peace can sometimes coexist. Uh, when God says, don't worry, I don't think it is uh, like this command from God, like a threatening thing. It, don't worry, because if you worry, I'm going to zap you. I think it's a loving recommendation purely for our benefit. 
Um, God's not focused on our disobedience when we worry, but rather our direction, the direction of our thoughts and the trajectory of our will. He is a loving father who aches at the thought of us remaining mired in a state of reflection that pulls us away from the comfort of his presence. Jesus, we are going to read, for those of us that, that engage in um, these scriptures for Holy Week, we're going to read of Jesus pouring out from the depths of his soul um, in the garden an agonizing prayer. Jesus, as best as I can interpret and discern, never stopped trusting in God, his Father. But that didn't mean that he experienced only this peace that bubbled over into laughter. Um, to be in such a state of emotional agony that you sweat drops of blood, as is described for us in this encounter that Jesus had in the garden, that doesn't sound like peace to me, at least not a peace that I would want. Um, increased heart rate, profuse sweating, those are indicative of anxiety. Nowhere do we read that Jesus beat himself up for not trusting more. After his flogging and crucifixion and resurrection, nowhere do we read that Jesus said, I wish I had cried less by trusting that everything was going to work out good in the end. When all of this is over, I don't want any of us to look back and go, boy, I just, uh, well, I, sh I, sh I shouldn't have been worried. I should have known it was going to work out okay. I, I think we have to give ourselves permission in this moment to lament. Um, April 24th will be the 14th anniversary of my mom's passing. Memorial Day weekend marks the eighth anniversary of my dad's death. Now, I mention this because I know that some of you have very recently experienced the loss of family members. And I've noticed that my fuse, as I approach April 24th and Memorial Day weekend, I've noticed that my fuse is a bit shorter. My irritability is a bit closer to the surface around those dates. And the same could be said for my emotions uh, when I get close to my parents' birthdays, as well as holidays, such as Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Christmas. Do I know that they are in a better place? Biblically speaking, yes. Does acknowledging that immediately alleviate my stress? No, at least not, not for me. On those anniversaries, birthdays, holidays, it's not uncommon for me to voice questions when I pray, specifically why questions. I don't know that I have really clear answers to those why questions. Lament, Psalms of lament. Lament is what happens when we ask why, but we don't get an answer. And here's what I want us to see. Psalms of lament are challenging for us to interpret because we have an either or mindset, but the psalmist expresses a both and mindset. As an example, I have subconsciously imposed upon myself the either or expectation of either I continue living with anxiety or I trust God. But reality is both and. Reality is both anxiety and trust in God can and often do coexist simultaneously within me. The ink of stress and the ink of trust are in that same pen. 
the either or approach actually fuels the anxiety by throttling myself with shoulds and oughts. I should trust God more. I ought to walk with more peace. What if my anxiety never goes away? Well, if my anxiety is still going to be there, this is my hope. I hope that I can grow my trust in God and his grace so that it will override that sense of anxiety. If it doesn't alleviate the anxiety, if my anxiety and worry do not shrink, then I ask God to grow my peace and trust to be the size that I can stand on that in spite of the presence of anxiety and distress. I want to invite you to, um, to just get quiet for a moment and, and to reflect. Psalm 3115, my times are in your hands. My times. We've all, we've described what those times are. Some of them real positive and some of them painfully, painfully disturbing. My times are in your hands. Now, I invite you to take those times and I want you to place them. Use your imagination here. I want you to imagine placing them on the palm of God's hand. I want you to acknowledge the times that we are in. I think that's good and healthy. And then transfer those times out of your hands and into God's hands. So here's your time to meditate. I want you to meditate on God's hands. You've spent some time thinking about times. Now I want you to use the chat feature as we prepare and we're about to turn the corner for communion. Use the chat feature and answer these questions. What are God's hands like? Again, engage your imagination. What do you see or feel or experience when you look at God's hands, when you imagine yourself in God's hands? Hmm. Always open. That's beautiful. <laughs> Big, comforting. Nothing he can't handle. Big again, steady, patient, secure, weathered. Yeah, he's been there. Weighty, cupped, and calloused, yet gentle. I think those, those things are great qualities that we see in God's hands. Mm. We see our true self in God's hands. He's big enough. His hands are warm and soft. Mm, Anne-Marie, I imagine my dad's hands, very strong. Hands that carry us where we need to go. Surreptitiously within everything. Outstretched. That's a beautiful picture of a hand. Outstretched. Because mm. that's what Jesus' hand was. That's a great lead-in for where we're headed with communion. When we consider the hands of Jesus... They were outstretched on the cross. They were pierced. And they're scarred. I don't know if that crossed your mind, but when you think of the hands of God, the hands of Jesus, the Son of God, we cannot overlook the scars. The scars are visible displays of His unconditional love. As we are about to eat the bread and drink from the cup, 
can we do this while reflecting on the hands of Jesus, outstretched, pierced, and now scarred? These are hands I can trust, but I put my trust in those hands. My times are in your hands.